Amen. Okay, welcome to our Acts class tonight. Um, <clears throat> if you haven't been able to get to all of the classes, don't worry. Um, we will. We always frame the context, and all of the classes are recorded online, um, so you can you can catch up at your leisure. But tonight we are in the middle, really, of Paul's second missionary journey, of which he had three journeys. And we're on his second one, and this is captured for us in Acts 16 to 18. And if we reconsider the timeline just for a moment, you can see on this timeline... Now, if you if you look this up yourself online, you're going to see some discrepancies on the dates. It's, it's not always easy to pinpoint it exactly, but this is something for us to go by. Um, so you can remember that we can look here, uh, Paul's conversion. Uh, this is when Paul went up to Antioch with Barnabas and began to teach the disciples there. And then sometime afterwards, um, they started the missionary journey, which wasn't a month or two months, but a couple of years, the journey, as they traveled around. And when they came back, there was the famous Jerusalem Council, which really established what is the gospel, what is the expectation, not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile uh, to, to be Christians. So that was established there. It was They were given letters to clearly say that you're saved by grace, and they took those letters with them on, on the uh, second missionary journey, etc. So that's uh, around around that date there, second missionary journey. Around 50, you'll read 51 to 52, something like that. But that's where we are at the moment. And that's our map. Uh, we remember um, on the second missionary journey, it was Paul and Silas. Not Paul and Barnabas, as was the first missionary journey. Barnabas and John Mark took their own journey. And Paul and Silas, uh, the Holy Spirit follows in, in the inspired history follows their journey. So um, up on this coastline, Antioch is about here. They travel um, from, from Syria on the coast through Cilicia, and they revisit some of these churches that they started back in Acts 13 and 14, the first missionary journey. And then, they, and then of course, they, they, the Holy Spirit very specifically guided them. They end up in Troas, and there in Acts 16... God gives Paul the Macedonian vision, where a man from Macedonia is crying out, come over and help us, which was a visual in the dream, clearly depicting the need for people for salvation, for the gospel. So they took that on themselves, a team of, um, it was Paul and Silas, but by that time they picked up Timothy who was a young disciple, probably got saved on the first missionary journey. They picked him up. He lived in Derby or Lystra. And then we also read by Acts 16 that Luke has joined them. So now, by now, the team is four of them. And from Troas, they've set across. And it's the first time the gospel goes to Europe. They come across to this uh, Greek mainland. And they come to Philippi, Acts 16, the wonderful story of their time there and Lydia and the the, the demonized girl and the jailer in his household and all of these wonderful divine appointments and they leave a church there in Philippi. <clears throat> um, of course, Paul and Silas were beaten, imprisoned uh, in, in Philippi. Uh, they were delivered and then when they left, they left Luke in Philippi, which is significant, for, for, significant because we realize the pastoral heart 
of Paul and, of course, of Luke to not leave that new church without a covering, without a pastor. So Luke, it seems, stays there, and the rest of the team move on to Thessaloniki, and that's in Acts 17. Um, again, there's some persecution, in fact, a little bit of a riot, um, and they have to flee from there to Berea. We remember in that same chapter, chapter 17, there are the more noble Jews who, who listen to Paul and rather than immediately react or resist, they decide to search the Old Testament scriptures to see if what he said was true. And therefore, many of them believed because Paul was trying to convince them. And what did he always do when he went to synagogues to the towns? He was convincing them that Jesus, the one that was crucified, was the Messiah and he rose again, and whoever believes can have eternal life. That was the nutshell of the message all the time. And he would use the Old Testament scriptures to prove persuasively through the prophecies, etc., that Jesus was the, was the promised Messiah. So, <clears throat> uh, the Jews from Thessalonica that have caused the trouble catch up with them in Berea, and basically they're chased out again. And this time, Paul leaves Timothy and Silas in Berea. So as far as we know, Luke is still in Philippi. And now Silas and Timothy stay in Berea. And Paul goes alone down to Athens. And this is where we finished the last time we were in this class together, where Paul was alone in Athens. Um, and of course, that was a city, uh, we could say a student city, university city, an intellectual city, um, and Paul saw that it was wholly given over to idolatry. That's where he preaches the famous message of the unknown God, I declare to you, in that uh, city. And then, so we come to Acts 18 uh, together tonight. Let's see here. And we come to where Paul is in Corinth. And if we would say that Athens, of course it was given to idolatry, lots of sin there, etc. But we could say that Athens was given to idolatry. Corinth would be the city of sin or sin city. And at this point on the missionary journey, it seems that Paul begins to get a little weather beaten. He's a little discouraged. It's beginning to wear on him. I'm sure the fact that in Athens and now in Corinth in these two very challenging cities, him being alone didn't help. Uh, team concept in missions is very important. Uh, the mutual encouragement and, and how you can inspire each other in the work, whether it's in a foreign mission field or a local church like this one. Uh, like-minded team members is so strengthening, so important. We have... Uh, Perhaps our own shortcomings, uh, perhaps there isn't as much fruit as we expected, or the atmosphere is very active with projections and accusations to my own heart. And to have a team that can dispel that type of thing through prayer and edification is so powerful. So imagine Paul, as, as amazing as he is and as gifted as he is, alone in Athens and now alone in Corinth. And he's been through the wars a bit. We just rehearsed those those chapters. He's been through the wars. He's, the Jews are opposing him and chasing him uh, as he goes. So he comes to Corinth and we're starting to sense that he's um, a little bit weary. Uh, Jesus sent them out two by two for a reason. Now, when you think about the life of David, out of 
David's history, which we read in 1 Samuel, we get the Psalms, many of the Psalms. And those Psalms are rooted right in David's experience. They weren't, they, they weren't some lofty, detached poet, poetry. They were right from his experience and his heart, his cry to God, his facing his enemies. And in the same way, we see some of Paul's letters. They come out of the context of, of where he is. So Paul writes letters during his troubled times. In fact, when he writes back to the church in Corinth, he says in 2.3 of 1 Corinthians, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. So that verse gives us a little insight. When he writes back to them later, he says, listen, when I was in Corinth with you, I, 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 wasn't, I was having a hard time. He also wrote from Corinth on this missionary journey. He, write, he looks back to Thessalonica. Remember that he was there. And this is where he writes the two inspired letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, from Corinth back to Thessalonica. He, gets, he hears news from them. It's actually Timothy who catches up with Paul, and he brings in the good news of Thessalonica, tells them that the church is doing well. Paul, therefore, begins to, to write to them. And in that letter... In 2 Thessalonians 3.13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing well or doing good. And again, this, is, this, I think, was the challenge that was facing Paul at this point in his life as well. As he was in Athens and now in Corinth, and he writes this letter, and this was in his own context. Brothers, I would encourage you, don't be weary in well-doing, as the temptation could be. And I'm sure there isn't a Christian, particularly a pastor or a minister or a missionary who's ever been challenged with growing weary uh, in, in the work, in the ministry. And Paul, from his own experience, encourages them, don't grow weary in well-doing. And uh, we're going to see in this chapter certain ways that God really encourages Paul. So if we kick off... Um, Paul is in Corinth. It's not too far from Athens. It's about 50 miles, but again, a different city altogether. Corinth at the time was the biggest city in Greece. It was very cosmopolitan. It was a commercial center. It had an outdoor amphitheater that would seat 20,000 people. If you look again at the location on the map, you'll see um, Corinth is on this strait or this isthmus, this connecting land between what we could call northern and southern Greece. So it's very strategically placed. Any, any commerce or travelers that would, that would come across land would have to pass through here if they would come from one end, from north to south or south to north. Equally, if anyone was traveling, let's say, from the um, uh, western part of Greece and they wanted to get over to Athens, they would want to cut through here. Um, and Corinth was on the narrowest part. It was about five miles. And it wasn't uncommon that sailors would load their ships, sail all the way down to Corinth, unload all of the cargo, transport it all the way across land, and then rent another ship and sail for the rest of the way because it would save them so much time and treacherous seas, etc. Even some of the smaller vessels, they would, they would have a a rolling mechanism, and they would roll them five miles across the land. Um, 
So that's the Isthmus. It's almost fam- also famous for the Isthmian Games, which is second only to the Olympics at the time. So you can imagine what a hub of activity, of travelers, of sailors, of entertainers, of merchants, all would pass through or congregate through Corinth. Um, today, by the way, there is a canal that has been cut through. It's completed in 1893 to, to cut across that stretch. But at the time, that wasn't the case. There was also an Acropolis. Uh, this is the ancient ruins of Corinth. And this mount, uh, the Acropolis, overlooking ancient Corinth, was famous for a massive temple up there that was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, uh, the god associated with passion or love or lust or sexual activity. Uh, that temple had with it a thousand priestesses or effectively prostitutes. And um, you can imagine how that would affect or add to the corruption of the Corinthian city. So Corinth was Sin City. There's Aphrodite. That's uh, one of the few statues I could find where she had clothes on. Um, but that was the famous goddess of, uh, of love or, or sexual passion. And it was a center of trade and travelers as sailors, as we've said. And therefore, it kind of became a place where the entertainment of lust was a focus. There was so much... Um, uh, corruption and sin wholesale in this city. So imagine when Paul, the apostle, comes to Corinth and he's there for some time and he's taking the sin. He's seeing a lot of that uh, sin. In fact, the Greek word Corinthiazomai is a Greek word which means to act like a Corinthian. And over time, that word came to mean to practice fornication. The same word, to be a Corinthian, came to mean one who, who commits fornication. That's, that's what was associated with Corinth. Um, plays of the day, if there was ever a Corinthian who was being portrayed, he'd always be drunk, he'd always be immoral. That was what was associated with Corinth. Later, Paul will write the book of Romans from Corinth. Not on this missionary journey, but later when he's in Corinth, he writes the book of Romans. Uh, I think it's interesting that I'll just read to you these verses. Again, think Paul is in Corinth. And again, he's writing to Romans, but his context is going to affect his heart, his passion, his own meditations. And I'll read you these verses from Romans one twenty four. Therefore God also gave them up to their uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, 
wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do those things, but approve of those who practice them. That perhaps could be a description in some measure of what Paul witnessed in Corinth. Again, it was from Corinth that Paul wrote the book of Thessalonians. And in chapter 4, verse 3, I'll read you these verses. He says, For this is the will of God, now, he's writing back to Thessalonians, this, this church that he planted through some persecution. And he's in Corinth, and he looks back to Thessalonians, and this is what he says to them. It is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do know not God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all, such as we all forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Again, I just cite that passage because perhaps the context had an effect on Paul's heart. As he was in Corinth, surrounded with so much um, uh, sin and debauchery that it perhaps affected him. And it seems as though much of this, again, in some measure, began to seep into the church. Or people who were coming out of the world into the church, uh, it was affecting the church. And when we read Paul's letters, which he later writes back to the Corinthian church, we see him have to address this. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5.1, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Now, whether his father's wife was his stepmother or his actual mother is is in question. Nevertheless, this is what the Apostle Paul is hearing and dealing with in the church. Imagine, in the church of Corinth. Also, in as it goes on in chapter 6, Again to Corinth, he says, The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, God says, shall become one flesh. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. So I say all that again just to give some context to Corinth. I think by now you get the idea. 
it was quite a challenge to be a believer in that city in, in, in some measure as it would be to be in certain cities and places in the world today. But it's in this city that Paul will settle for 18 months, a year and a half, a long stretch that he has in this city, and God keeps him there. And it's after he's been there for some time, Silas and Timothy will join him. He will work as a tent maker. He will preach the gospel. He will plant a church. He will write those two letters to Thessalonica. So God is looking to encourage Paul. How does he do it? Well, the first thing he does is he gives him some companionship. Before Timothy and Silas arrive, Paul wonderfully connects with a couple that become quite famous through the epistles, and that's Aquila and Priscilla. And we read of that in verse 2. By the way, if you have your Bibles, you you can just follow. uh, Some of them I have on the screen. Uh, Most of them I think have on the screen. You might be okay. In verse 2, And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So again, this is the first time they're mentioned, but they become beloved friends and co-laborers with Paul. Right up to the end, I think it's even in Second Timothy they're also mentioned, which is right before Paul's martyrdom, he mentions them. Um, so... Uh, Uh, it's possible that they were already Christians at this point. You could lean either way on that. However, it doesn't mention that Paul leads them to the Lord or baptizes them. Uh, Typically, as we've seen, when Paul goes to a city, it, it often mentions people getting saved, or even some of them by name. But it doesn't mention that uh, here. We know that there was a church in Rome, where Aquila was from, way before this time. In fact, in Acts 2.10, at Pentecost, it says, when they were all gathered, there's a little clause there that says, and strangers from Rome, which is significant because we don't know who started the church in Rome. It wasn't Paul, though he wrote to them. Um, So it started somehow, perhaps from those strangers from Rome at Pentecost, went back to Rome, started a church, people became believers. Perhaps Aquila became a Christian in Rome. We don't know. Nevertheless, Whether he was before, he certainly was after when he met Paul and they had sweet um, fellowship. Just like God to prepare something like this to encourage Paul. So, verse 3. No, verse 3, yeah. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Now, perhaps we've heard this, that Paul, by trade, was a tent maker. It was a local trade that he would have learned in Tarsus, where he was originally from. Uh, The Greek infers, actually, it's not just making tents, but actually working with leather. Uh, And a lot of the tents would have been made from goat hide, so he would have been working with skins, etc. But a tent maker, same trade as Aquila and Priscilla. And, um, And, of course, from this, we can gather that Paul was working to raise support. He'd also done this in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he says to them, again, he's writing this from Corinth, You remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we wouldn't be chargeable to any of you we preached unto you the gospel of God. 
He's there saying, so that we wouldn't be chargeable, we worked so that we could have a ministry. Second Thessalonians 3.8. Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Acts 20.34. These hands ministered to my need and those with me. A balance of that, of course, is 1 Corinthians 9.14, where Paul says those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. Both of those could be a season that God would have in the ministry for a particular time, for a particular person. Um, I know pretty much all of my Christian ministry, apart from two years in Czech Republic, uh, have been, I was working to, so that I could pass or so that I could minister. This is the first appointment that I've had where I'm actually uh, living from the gospel, as Paul mentions it here. So uh, God may have it different ways at different times. In verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Uh, again, this is the same method used in Thessalonica. And again, he's showing through the scriptures, that Christ is, uh, Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament. And of course, predominantly Jews would be gathering, but also sometimes Gentile God-fearers would gather. Nevertheless, the respect for the word of God was paramount. So if it could be demonstrated from the scriptures clearly that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, it's a hard argument to to. to uh, to stave off. Nevertheless, there was often so much resistance. Um, it's not uncommon that the Jews, it, it says the Jews in a, in, a, in a general sense reacted and chased Paul out and then it makes a little footnote, but some believed. It's, it's not uncommon that, that that was the case. So, um, imagine being Aquila at this point. You're Aquila, you're from Rome, you're married to Priscilla, who may have been a Gentile, we don't know. But so imagine Aquila goes to the synagogue with Paul, and perhaps they say, Does anyone have anything to say? And Paul stands up, I have something to say, and Aquila begins to listen to Paul open the scriptures. It must have been quite an experience for him. And these are powerful words where it says that he persuaded them, um, he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 through, through 4 says, When I came to you, I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Now remember, remember Christ, we often think of that as a name, but Christ is a title. He's saying, I, I, I came to you knowing nothing but Christ or the Messiah and him crucified. In other words, I, I came to you showing that the one who was crucified was the Messiah. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 2. So the first encouragement God brings to Paul is the, um, is the companionship through Aquila and Priscilla. And then in verse 5, we see that Silas and Timothy catch up. They come from Macedonia, and Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So it seems that they had they join him from Thessalonica. They perhaps pass through Athens himself. We don't know. But they eventually joined him here. And this would have been a great day for Paul. Can you imagine? You know what it means to have some camaraderie in the gospel, some history together. You shared some adventures and some stories. 
and you're alone in Athens, you're alone in Corinth, and all of the challenge and the sin, you're beginning to be a bit discouraged, and God brings Timothy and Silas. I bet that was an incredible uh, moment for Paul. And Paul, actually, Paul refers to this again in the letter back to Thessalonians, which he seems to write and send with Timothy quite quickly. Timothy arrives, oh, it's great to be here. Oh, how's the church doing? Great. Okay. Timothy goes back with the letter, and Paul writes there, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 7, But now when Timothy came from you to us, and this was in Corinth, and brought us good news of your faith and your love, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, and we also to see you therefore, we were greatly comforted over you in all our affliction and distress." So that's another point of encouragement. Not just that Timothy and Silas were there, but the news that Timothy brought. The great news. Paul was in such a challenging place in one sense, but when he heard about that church, it brought such joy and comfort to his heart. So, Silas and Timothy have arrived. He's He's testifying to the Jews. And what is the response? Do I have this up here? No. The response in verse 6 says, When they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now, I will go to the Gentiles. So, Paul takes his garment, he shakes his garment, and in that, historically, that was a very significant um, symbolic act of kind of like when Jesus says, Shake your dust off your shoes if they don't receive you. Paul shakes out his garment shakes the dust off it and says, okay, if you won't receive it, I go to the Gentiles. And of course, that was what God was uh, moving Paul to do anyway, but he, he had a continued heart for the Jews. And where he says here, the blood be upon your heads, I'm clean. In other words, I've fulfilled my responsibility. I've delivered the gospel to you. I am clean and you're responsible before God. So Paul marches out of the synagogue, but he doesn't get too far. Verse uh, 7 tells us, it's not up there, but verse 7 says, He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So he didn't get too far away. Um, and this, this man here, Justice, it says worship God. Perhaps this would be the first named convert in Corinth. A Roman name, a Gentile God-fearer who attended the, the synagogue and um, seems found a connection with Paul. And if anyone really finds a connection with Paul, it's not small talk. It's because they're responding to, to his ministry and, and gospel. And in verse 8, And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So here we start to see some fruits. This was another encouragement from Paul. Companionship, his friends joined him, news from Thessalonica, and now fruit right where they were at in this challenging city of Corinth, different ones believing. What's interesting about this verse, this character here mentioned Crispus, in the book of Corinth, uh, Corinthians, in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I baptize none of you but Crispus, Gaius, Stephanus, and his household. So Crispus is actually mentioned when Paul writes back to the church of Corinth, it seems that um, 
Crispus may have been with Paul at that time. We don't know. But certainly, this is the Crispus that got saved and got baptized when Paul was there and the church in Corinth knew him, which would tell us that as the church began to grow, Crispus was one who certainly continued in the faith. Now in verse 9, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. And this is a major reason why we know Paul was perhaps struggling a little bit. He wasn't invincible. He wasn't, you know, the super Christian who never suffered fears or, or, or weariness in his own heart. And this was a time. The reason God said to him, uh, do not be afraid, is because that was what Paul was facing. Paul was beginning to think, okay, Crispus, he's the head of the synagogue, just got saved. What does this mean now? What persecution are we going to face now? Maybe it's time for us to leave Corinth. And God so faithfully visits him in the night and gives him this vision. There are several visions that Paul encounters uh, uh, in his ministry. And this four prominent ones. And this one is crucial. It's in the, in the work, in the ministry, in the trenches, when you are tempted to be weary in well-doing when you are tempted to be discouraged or fearful or not, no, I don't want to speak anymore, which seems to be what Paul's temptation was as well because God says to him, but speak and do not keep silent. Paul perhaps in his mind was thinking, that's it. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to preach here anymore. And God so faithfully um, will, will come alongside the paraclete at the, the perfect time and give you a word in season. It's amazing. And he does this so beautifully with Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16, again, written from Corinth, Paul says, the same ones who killed Christ and their own prophets are persecuting us. When he writes that, he's in Corinth. He writes to Thessalonians and says, the same ones who killed Christ and their prophets are now persecuting us and they are forbidding us to speak. Oh, sorry, I have it up there. And they are forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. This is what Paul was facing in Corinth at this time when the Lord appeared to him and gave him this encouragement. There were Jews who were wanting to forbid him to speak trying to hinder his ministry. And at that point, God comes alongside, gives this incredible, uh, encouraging word. And what does God say? Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. And then he gives three reasons for that in verse 10. Number one, for I am with you. Number two, no one will attack you to hurt you. And number three, I have many people in this city. Do not fear, do not, do not, Stop speaking and ministering because I am with you. No man will hurt you and I have many people in this city. Such encouraging words. Perhaps I think there could be nothing more encouraging for us to know and to sense the presence of God in our life. To sense the presence and the pleasure and the power of God in our life. There could be nothing more strengthening and encouraging than that. You could face so much if you sense that in your life. And that's what God encouraged Paul with. And then he gave them the assurance of safety. He said, no one will attack you to hurt you. In other words, I, will, I am present and also I will protect you. 
And then many people in this city, and this is the principle um, that my, my way of understanding this is that God in his foreknowledge, knowing who will respond to the gospel, he says, listen, in this city, they don't know it yet, but there are many people in this city who will be added to Christ, who will respond to the gospel. I can see it. God could say, I could see there will be a church here. There will be people born again and saved. And there's many people in this city. So Paul, continue. Don't quit. Don't give up. But continue. Persevere. Because there will be many who will respond. How encouraging would that could that be to someone in the heart? So here's the Lord's vision. So here are the steps of encouragement. Companionship, friendship, news from the previous churches. Um, uh, what's the next one? Uh, fruit, right where he's at in Corinth, people getting saved. And then finally, the Lord personally speaks to his heart and gives him an encouragement. What's the result? Verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. We don't know if, if verse 11 will be there without these two verses. We don't know if Paul may have said, you know what, guys, it's, it's time to pack up. But God met him, and because of that, we read this verse, he continued. Wasn't that amazing? He continued. And sadly, there are so many in missions and ministry and church work who don't continue and, and, and need such encouragement. But he was teaching the word among them for a year and six months. A lot can happen in a year and six months. And in that church, he was teaching, he was discipling, um, and it, an incredible time with a, with a wonderful church, a church that lacked no gifts, a church that had incredible diversity, and yet certainly a church that had a lot of problems. Uh, today we're thankful for that because we have First and Second Corinthians where Paul was able to address so many of those problems that are so instructive for us in the church age. Um, but the church of Corinth might not be the church you might choose. Hmm, I wonder if our church could be like the church in Corinth. They had a lot of division, a lot of doctrinal problems, a lot of uh, application problems in the church. Um, but nevertheless, there was, there was wonderful fruit. And, and I'm sure that Paul's letters uh, addressed the problems and, and, and it, you know, it was an incredible uh, church going forwards. So... We're going to bring this to a close soon because we just want to really come to the end of the second missionary journey, which is just before the end of this chapter. But verse 12 says, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So this is some time after that, perhaps towards the end of the year and a half. We don't know exactly. Um, and they grabbed Paul and they brought him to the judgment seat. I have a picture of the ruins of it there. The Bema seat, it's called, or the judgment seat, where they would take people who were to be tried in some measure. And, um, and uh, you, you might read this and say, well, wait a minute. Didn't God say to Paul, no one will lay their hands on you to hurt you? Do not fear. And now all of a sudden, Paul's being carried to the judgment seat. We're saying, well, well what's going to happen? And what do they say? Verse 13, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Of course, Judaism was legally recognized as a religion uh, uh, under the Roman Empire. And Christianity was effectively seen as a, 
an offshoot of that by the Romans or a, or a sect within it. And they kind of tolerated it. And they kind of said to the Jews, okay, well, we see Christianity. Well, they're talking about the Messiah just as you are. You deal with it. They weren't always so ready to deal with it. Of course, later, the, the, the persecution certainly narrowed on Christians under the Roman emperors. But this particular uh, uh, proconsul, Gallio, this is how he responded. Verse 18, when Paul was about to open his mouth... Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, old Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. So he wasn't going to get involved in their religious disputes about the Messiah and what he's, what, what this man Paul is doing. Uh, the issue wasn't breaking Roman law. So he let Paul go, and we say God was faithful in that. That's what was happening. God kept his promise that no man would lay his hand on you to hurt you. And verse 17, And then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, which it seems he took the place of Crispus, who became a Christian and perhaps didn't continue in the synagogue. So now Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio took no notice of these things. So they said, okay, well, if you're not, you're not going to help us, okay, well, we want some satisfaction. Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, let's take it out on him. They beat the poor fellow. And Gallio said, okay, whatever. He moved. He didn't care about that at all. Another wonderful thing about this um, is if we look in the book of Corinthians, again, in 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, so this is the opening verse of Paul's book to Corinth. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So, what we can gather from this is that perhaps that beating was something that God used to bring him to his faith if he wasn't already a Christian before that, but we've got no reason to believe that he was. But certainly he became a Christian, and when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and again, this is another case where it seems when Paul would write a letter, he would always include those who were with him who had any relevance to the church. So when he wrote to the church in Philippians, he says, Paul and Silas to the church in Philippi, because Silas was on the mission trip, right? So here he says, Paul and Sosthenes, our brother, because they all knew him. And it seems that he was with Paul at that time when he wrote the letter. Wonderful. So, and these last couple of verses here, verse 18, I'll just read them to you. It says, so Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Now, Syria meaning this stretch of coast along here, along the Mediterranean, across from Cyprus. And this is where Antioch was, where they began. And this really is the full circuit of the missions trip. So he now leaves Corinth, which is here, jumps on a boat, and he's heading for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sencria, for he had taken a vow. And that's one of those curious verses, like, wait a minute, what? Paul is taking a vow. What type of vow did he take and why did he take it? What was the meaning of it? Um, it's possible that uh, he made 
the Nazarite vow, which was a very well-known vow among the Jews to show someone who is really expressing a sanctification before God. It may be a case that Paul was doing that, as he famously says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, that I will become all things to all men that I might win some. I will become a Jew to the Jews that I might win some, etc. So that, that's uh, perhaps what that alludes to. So it says here he stayed a good while. He had the liberty to remain there for a while. But then from a port in Corinth, he sets sail. You'll notice there, he's, the, 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 the red line here takes us to Ephesus first, follows that coastline a little bit, and then cuts uh, uh, south of Cyprus. And we read that in verse 19. And he came to Ephesus. Now, when we read that, as, uh, as New Testament Christians, as, as Bible readers, we think, oh, Ephesus. Oh, look at that, the jewel in the crown, Ephesus. But Ephesus wasn't yet on the map, so to speak. It was, there wasn't a church there yet. And uh, you'll notice it says, and he left them there, them being Priscilla and Aquila, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So here he passes Ephesus at the beginning. He passes Ephesus um, at the beginning of the journey. You remember at the beginning of this journey, we, we read about Ephesus before, but again, it wasn't his time to go there. But here we'll see that Paul does take time to stop, go into the synagogue, and he does preach there in Ephesus. And, he, and these two mature disciples, um, he leaves there. So we can only assume that they were involved in the work that what would become the famous church of Ephesus that Paul will later, later write to. And then verse 20 I don't think I have any more verses up there, but verse 20 says, And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. So we love the request because we see a bond in the heart between these perhaps new Ephesian believers saying, Oh, can you stay longer just like Lydia did? Oh, please, can you stay longer? Can you teach us more? Tell us again the gospel? Please teach us. And Paul had the liberty to stay long in Corinth. We read that. In verse, uh, in verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while. But here in Ephesus, he did not consent. He will come back later, but this is not the time. And it tells us the reason in verse 21. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, and I will return to you again, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So he wanted to make the feast. It seems that this feast at this time was Passover that he wanted to get to. And he says, I'll return. It's my desire to return, and I will return if it's God's will. And, of course, he does return. And we'll talk about the city and the work in Ephesus when we hit that city on Paul's return. Verse 22, our closing verse, And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So that's uh, the ruins of a synagogue in Ephesus. And we just read that Paul went there. And that's Caesarea, which um, is one of the most remarkable places to visit. It's, it's really incredible. Over here, there's a massive amphitheater. And this is one of those long, like a Ben-Hur kind of chariot race remains. 
And this is the remains of Herod's, one of, one of Herod's many palaces that was built. This is a swimming pool, and this is the remains of the castle, and it stretches all the way along the coast. It's a magical place. And of course, Paul famously later, and we'll study it together, uh, it's very possible that Paul stood trial in that amphitheater in Caesarea when he, towards later on, on in his journey to Rome. Um, so if we look back at the map, he sails down here to Caesarea, he travels back up to Antioch, and that closing verse says, and he greeted the church. He'd gone up, greeted the church. I'm sorry, the church would have been Jerusalem, sorry. So he came to Caesarea. I don't know why that's not on this map. But he came to Caesarea, went up and greeted the church. So it's always up to Jerusalem because of the, the topography, is that the word? To Jerusalem, and it's always down from Jerusalem. So he went up, greeted the church, and then went to Antioch and, and was with the brethren. Uh, he saluted the Jerusalem church, but nothing is recorded about it. You notice that. He doesn't say he went to Jerusalem and they rejoice with me about the missionary journey. And they, we don't read that. It, you never get the sense that the church in Jerusalem were fully that they ever fully embraced uh, Paul and the ministry to the Gentiles. It was just one of those it was never, never quite connected. It seems, but but anyway, it, it's not recorded here. Anyway, probably wasn't the warmest of welcomes. But he stopped in and greeted them out of respect. Um, and this marks the end of the second missionary journey. And uh, as you read on in your, in your chapter, it, it continues into the third missionary journey. So we'll pick up there uh, next week. All right, so Father, we thank you for this time tonight, looking at Acts 18. And we pray you bless each of us in our own ponderings, our own reading and reflections as we consider these amazing um, uh, chapters of, of action and mission and uh, church planting and, and ministry. We pray you'd use them to stir our own hearts uh, and bless them to, to our thoughts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.